The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by SeatGeek, the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more. For $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, use promo code RINGERMLB. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. Soft what sound from yonder podcast breaks tis the east and the ringer mlb show is the sun this is the ringer mlb show my name is michael bauman and i am your host and a staff writer at the ringer as always we are part of the ringer podcast network be sure to listen to the latest edition of our music podcast called on shuffle with host michael peters and if you enjoy written content be sure to check out the ringer.com where the NBA draft guide is a multimedia tour de force, a Concord moment in the integration of pros and design. You also might be interested in our World Cup content. The World Cup starts this week. I wrote about Mexican national team and the role that soccer plays in cultural identity. And Mike Goodman, the God, wrote about how to watch the World Cup like a nerd as if I have any other choice. But to lead off today's show, we're going to be sticking to baseball, unfortunately, as our Otani watch with Zach Cram takes a turn for the tragic. Shohei Otani is going to be on the DL, potentially going to miss the rest of this season, potentially going to miss all of 2019. So I'm not really looking forward to this, Zach Cram, writer for TheRinger.com. We've pulled ourselves out of mourning, uh, all about the content. So what I want to know, first of all, is what do you look forward to covering now that the ringer will no longer be talking about baseball since Shohei Otani's on the shelf, at least for a little while? And the news broke the same day that the NBA season ended with the Warriors sweeping the finals. So basketball is over for the meantime as well. I guess we got have the World Cup the World coming Cup, up, so that's it? exciting. That'll last us about halfway to the World Series. And beyond that, there's very, very little. And yes, you say this as a joke, but this was the most fun story by far of the 2018 season. And now it's potentially gone for a year and a half. Yeah. NFL training camp. Maybe we'll we'll do a, a big package about the Vuelta a España when that comes around. Yeah, it's... This sucks. Like, even if he's only out for... I don't know, I guess the... The absolute minimum that was reported on uh, on Friday, I believe, last week was three weeks, and it's probably going to be more than that, even in a best case scenario. And, and that could have the like this wouldn't be a torpedo below the waterline for the Angels if the Mariners weren't also playing like the 2001 version of themselves. But this is all of a sudden a very difficult a wild card race to get back into. Yeah, so to, I guess, take a step back in case people haven't heard, uh, Otani was placed on the disabled list last Friday with a grade two sprain of the UCL in his right elbow. That's the ligament whose tear leads to Tommy John surgery. If it's a grade three sprain, it's a complete tear. Tommy John is definite. Grade two, there's some flexibility there. So he received some injections of... PRP and some stem cells, which have had mixed success in the past, but it's certainly not promising. Otani, it was reported that last year he suffered a grade one sprain of the same ligament, and now it's apparently getting worse, and that doesn't sound like the kind of thing that gets better. Uh, John Rogel keeps, he's a sports guy who keeps a database of 
various treatments of this kind of injury and he's calculated that roughly half of pitchers who get the PRP injections end up needing Tommy John surgery anyway and if Otani needs Tommy John surgery like you said he'll miss all of the rest of this season he'll likely miss all of next season and then we'll have it's almost worse having seen this glimpse of how good he can be if he weren't going to you know, if he were still pitching in Japan and not coming over, we'd still just be kind of wondering, oh, will the two-way experiment work? How will this translate to Major League Baseball? But now we know it works, and we know he can be one of the best hitters and best pitchers in the league. So it's almost more upsetting to have been enticed by this admittedly short glimpse and now to potentially have that taken away for so long. This seems like a... Well, it seems like the Angels are once again giving into the temptation to try to skirt Tommy John surgery. And I, and it feels like the only time that's been successful in any sort of long term was Masahiro Tanaka, who's pitched through various elbow or various UCL um, ailments relatively effectively for the past couple of years. And this, of course, is not bringing into... Um, Bring into the picture any sort of primary repair techniques, such as uh, Seth Manus, I believe, was the pitcher who had it last year. Uh, one of the doctor or Jeffrey Dugas, uh, an orthopedic surgeon, came on the show to talk about that last year. Otani is so important to the Angels, and he's so important to baseball that there it almost feels like an attractive PRP in the the stem cells feel like an attractive option just because the specter of losing him for a year and a half is almost unthinkable. Yeah, the the issue is, of course, that he contributed value on both sides. And the question of, well, can he still hit while his elbow is barking on, on the pitching mound? And I certainly don't think the Angels would try to rush that. I know Mike Sosha said, oh, well, maybe he'll DH if we think that's in the, the, the cards for him. But I'm not sure given how conservative and cautious the Angels have been, skipping starts when he had any sort of discomfort or blisters, only starting him once a week, not having him hit the day before or after he pitches. It seems unlikely that they would tempt fate like that, even if, as you said, they're in a what looks to be a difficult wildcard race. Both baseball prospectus and fangrass right now project the Angels with between a 20 and 25% chance of even just making the wildcard game, which aren't very optimistic odds and Otani was such a big part of their team both in the lineup and rotation that this is a cost and the Angels will I guess have to weigh both short-term versus long-term risk versus reward it just seems like there's so much risk that I'm not sure the Angels would attempt it well I definitely don't think that makes sense on this end of the of the injury window for instance because it all indications are, and maybe we're wrong about this, and I hope we're wrong about this, but it looks like he's going to have to get cut in order to pitch effectively in the big leagues again. And if you're just putting it off now, like it's going to have to happen sometime. So even if he could DH now with this uh, with this elbow injury, you're just sort of you're just pushing back the timeline for his return as a pitcher. And I don't know, maybe you. And again, I I don't know if he can hit effectively with this. Uh, with this injury, um, but even if he could, you can you're you're pushing it back, and maybe you try to line it up so he misses so that eighteen month recovery time is two off seasons, and he comes back in time for spring training twenty twenty. But that just feels it just feels like getting too cute with a really valuable player, you know, and a player who they've been very cautious with so far. One thing I could see them doing is if he does get the Tommy John surgery and he comes back, the recovery time for hitters obviously isn't as long for pitchers. So if he can hit 
two or three months before he's able to to pitch. Maybe he comes back early and uh, and DHs for a little bit while he, he strengthens his throwing arm. I could see that happening, but we're still probably an easy year away from from that being a question, even if he gets a surgery today. And the Angels, like you said, have not been cute with him. They've been cautious, and that's forgive me for potentially ranting for a second. Go but for it. You you there's been <laughs> you, you tease this. I'm so excited for this. There's been I've I've seen so many like honestly bad faith arguments since Friday. So much retrospective second guessing about Mike Sosha. Maybe just because Sosha has been sort of this controversial figure for advanced analytics guys before about how the Angels were using Otani. The the reason Otani is hurt is because he's a pitcher and pitchers get hurt because pitching is bad for the human arm. He throws fast. If you've ever like paused uh, an image or, or seen a pitcher mid throw and seen what it's doing to his elbow, it's a wonder that anyone survives pitching without getting hurt. He's not getting hurt because he's he's pitching and hitting. The hitting is not making him any different than the hundreds of pitchers who have gotten Tommy John over the last few years who don't hit. And it's not because they're mismanaging his workload either. I, I saw an MLB Network segment the other day about how the Angels were pushing him too hard in the starts. He was only starting once a week. And even in those starts, he was averaging for the full season 89 pitches per start. That's not a lot. He had only gone over 100 pitches twice. His maximum was 110, and he looked dominant in those games. You know, he would come back out for a seventh inning after having six scoreless innings at 85 pitches. And now they're second guessing of, oh, maybe they shouldn't have sent him back out for that seventh inning because it, you know, added more pitches to his workload. If Otani is going to be the, the major league asset you want him to be, you're not going to take him out after 85 pitches in scoreless innings. That's kind of foolish to think. And even with workloads being diminished across the sport, the Angels did not cause this. Pitching in general caused this. And if we want people to be pitchers and wow us and entertain us with all the amazing things they can do with touching 100 miles an hour and throwing these magnificent sliders and splitters, this is a risk we have to take. And it sucks. And we're both very sad about that. But... It's kind of, it's sad to say, but it's not unexpected. We expect kind of the same thing about Noah Syndergaard and Jacob deGrom and all these other great pitchers, and it has nothing to do with workload issues. It's par for the course at this point. Well said. And it's, to me, two of the the big things that that people are, uh, that are defining our era of baseball, maybe is the best way to put it, is are the strikeouts and pitcher injuries that Tommy John and like honestly to just to restate your point it would be naive to think that a 23 year old power pitcher would not have Tommy John at some point in his career like this is it's it went from something that was career threatening to routine to a rite of passage everybody does it at least once um you know we've seen guys pitch in the major leagues after three Tommy John surgeries which feels outrageous but this is just the the pitching world we live in and so much of this is is uh it comes back to pitchers throwing harder, becoming bigger and stronger. And I, you know, I just think that throwing a baseball the way we've traditionally taught people to throw a baseball, people are so big and so strong that the connective tissue, like, like the ligaments on a racehorse are like strained to the breaking point and that you need to be a physical freak to not break down. This is like, this is just a, an obviously and relentlessly deleterious activity that, Nobody, you know, Otani's capable of doing things that uh, that no other player in the world is capable of doing, but he's still 
got this frail human body to contend with. And I, I do think it does potentially bring up longer term questions. If he suffers another elbow injury in two years, will it be worth transitioning to become a full-time hitter, which I think he could manage. He could certainly play right field. He hasn't done it in a couple of years, but he has the arm for it. He's very fast. He could learn that quickly. And among players this year who have batted at least 100 times, Otani has one of the 20 best batting lines in the sport. And he's a 23-year-old rookie adjusting to seeing Major League pitching for the first time. I don't think there's any doubt about his bat like there was even a couple months ago. So maybe down the line, this brings up questions about how to maximize his value. But for the moment, like you said, it, it would be naive to expect anything differently. And that doesn't make it suck any less but I don't think this should cause any hand-wringing about the way Otani has been handled thus far. And I think even if that is, and this is, I, I feel dirty even suggesting this seriously, but even if he is a right fielder who every so often can come in and throw an inning or two, that's still an incredibly valuable player just because you can deploy that extra high, uh, high leverage uh, one-inning reliever if that's what he turns into at a time and place of, of your choosing. And it brings up, interesting uh tactical considerations if you if you bring the dh into it but it, this is still this is by no means the end of the world for for tani it's just we've, we've it's another case of getting really excited about a pitcher and having to it, just as we're we're starting to get comfortable with him being part of the the major league landscape he goes on the shelf for a year and a half potentially we don't know this it's for kinda, sure yeah it's Almost uh, the sum is more than, or the whole is more than the sum of the two parts kind of thing, too, because I was thinking about this. Like, if we had learned on Friday that both an awesome pitcher and an awesome hitter were potentially out for the season, that would have felt really bad. But because Otani is doing something we haven't seen since Babe Ruth and combining those two into one, it almost feels worse than if we had heard that news separately. So let's refocus on the, on the here and now. What do you do if you're the Angels? Do you let it ride or do you go make a move? I, I Well, first, I think the discussion we had uh, recently about cutting Albert Pujols is now null and void um, because they're definitely going to keep him around for a while with the DH spot opening up. But I think their rotation, at least in the short term, can weather this loss a bit. With Garrett Richards and T Skaggs and Andrew Heaney, they have a not terrible top three. They were running a six-man rotation before, so now they can just fold into a five-man rotation without Otani. The interesting thing about the Angels is if we were having this conversation even a year ago, it would have been kind of like we were talking about with the Mariners recently, where they had basically no farm system and very little ability to make an upgrade. The Angels more than maybe any other team have improved their farm system over the last 12 months. They have real prospects now. The question is, are they close enough to a playoff spot to make it worth it? They're currently, like I said, only about a 25% chance of making the playoffs. They're five games out of a wildcard spot, five and a half games behind the Astros. And it's kind of a question of, First of all, is it worth it? And second of all, at what point do they have to make this decision? If they don't have to make this decision now, they can kind of wait and see. The Mariners have a really tough schedule coming up. Maybe the Angels close the gap. But 
if you're the Angels and want to make an upgrade, you probably don't want to have to wait until July 31st. Yeah, and I think this this plays in. I forget when exactly or why we were having this conversation about making that trade. It might have been the Dodgers with Seager. Um, the idea of just waiting to the deadline to see how the the market shakes out robs you of two months of your your rental. I think that the Angels really do need to wait and see because, like you said, this is they're in a situation where they could be in it at the deadline and they or they could be 15 games out and there's really no way to know whether they make a move or not you know i think if they make a move it'll help but there's no guarantee it'll work you know see what happened to the the oakland a's in 2014 um the interesting thing is their like you said their farm system is in a it's it's not great right now but their impact bats that you can go get when or that you can trade if you want to cash in Joe Adele and Brandon Marsh and Kevin Maiton for I don't know if that gets you Jacob deGrom if as loath as I am to bring up that possibility in a place where Sean Fennessy might hear it but it but that kind of pitcher can can be had you can go make that Justin Verlander trade or the U Darvish trade if, if that's what you want to do with this kind of farm system and to say nothing of they're getting you know Jaime Berea came up and has pitched pretty well this season. They're getting reinforcements from the minor leagues in a way that they haven't really since Trout and Calhoun came up. So that's all of that is is encouraging for the Angels' ability to to fill this this hole, whether it's internally and there are numerous different avenues they could go, whether they go get that number one starter or that, you know, that corner outfielder, that middle of the order bat, uh, like the Diamondbacks did with JD Martinez last year, for instance, or they there's any number of places they could improve the team in between. So it'll be interesting to see what form this move takes if the Angels decide that they're uh, in a position where that's what they need to do. But I but I do think they need to wait another probably another month to really see where they're at and whether it'll be worth making that move. They have some intriguing bats in the upper minors mm-hmm. too. They just called up uh, Jose Fernandez who came over from Cuba a couple of years ago and he, you know, ha- you have to give his statistics some caveat from the minor league ballpark he was playing in, but he had nearly a thousand OPS in AAA. They have some guys who in a short term might not be like a terrible downgrade if you're slotting them in at the bottom of the lineup. The real problem is if Otani's three-week absence turns into a three-month absence, then that's where you start losing some of the value. And like you said, I'm not optimistic that he will be back anytime soon. Yeah, I think the operative... I mean, I I assume this is going to be the worst-case scenario until we we find out otherwise. I just feel like that's a, a safe way to go about life, you know? Unfortunately. One thing I do know is that you will be back next week and we'll talk about hopefully better news. But uh, until then, it's been a pleasure as always having you on. Well, have our fingers crossed. So much for that sad news with Zach Cram. We'll be back with Claire McNear, who has happy news right on the other side of this commercial break. This episode of The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by Fielder's Choice Goods, featuring beautiful hand-cut wallets, card cases, and money clips made from vintage game-worn baseball gloves, which means that every product is one of a kind. And I imagine you listening to this podcast thinking, oh, wow, it would be cool to have a baseball-themed wallet or a wallet made out of baseball glove leather. And it is, and I don't mean to take anything away from that, but these are quality wallets, durable, flexible leather. Like, you think about the care that goes into massaging a baseball glove 
love and the and the way it gets worn and how flexible and soft it is. It is a real pleasure, and this is going to sound crazy, but it is a real pleasure to sit on, which uh, is a serious consideration if you, like me, tend to George Costanza via your wallet. Uh, I can't imagine ever having any other wallet in the future. And they are available just in time for Father's Day. For a limited time, get an exclusive offer of 10% off the entire Fielder's Choice Classics line when you go to fcgoods.com slash ringermlb. That's fcgoods.com slash ringermlb. Fielder's Choice Goods, the legacy is in the leather. So the last time Claire McNear was on the podcast, we talked about the what the inside of the human body looks like. And uh, in between when I arranged for her to come back and when we're actually recording, uh, we had a conversation on Slack about a man who who served his severed foot to uh, to his friends. So I feel like that's a good place to start. Hello, Claire. Great, great to be back. Um, you know, I don't think we'll be talking about anything quite as horrible as the two things you just mentioned. So that's promising. It, and it's surprising because we're going to talk about the San Francisco Giants who appear to have survived. They, I mean, they are not as ugly as the inside of a severed human foot that's been served to for for human consumption. They have survived the Madison Bumgarner injury. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I honestly, I, I thought that the Giants would be the severed foot of, of Major League Baseball this year. But lo and behold, um, I, I mean, I can't tell you how happy and maybe just a little bit surprised I was when you asked me to come on and talk about the Giants, the baseball loves of my life, um, who somehow are still relevant, even as we're kind of getting close to the halfway point of the season. Um, they're sitting right now at an even 500. They're 33-33 which is good for third in the NL West. Um, and they're only three and a half games back from the Diamondbacks and a half game back from the Dodgers. And, you know, right, they're, they're looking good, which is the weirdest part of it. Like, right now, they're just a smidge ahead of the Red Sox for first in the majors and team batting average. So, yeah, they're, they are weirdly good. And that's, I guess that's how you, I mean, if, if they were in the AL West, we probably wouldn't be talking about a 500 team uh, surviving. So some of this has to do with the, the Dodgers and the Diamondbacks just forgetting how to play baseball and dealing with injuries of their own, but they're doing this with, they've lost their three best pitchers. And when Jeff Samarja has been on the mound, he's been pretty terrible. Um, you know, you're talking about them as, as a high batting average team, which is not something that we've expected from the giants, even when they were winning world series, really the strength of the team has always been pitching and it's always been a pitcher's park. Yeah, and I mean, like you said, Madison Bumgarner is finally back. He busted a pinky on his pitching hand during his last start of spring training. He missed a couple months, um, and he's he's mostly looked pretty great. Like uh, it's you know he's mostly looked like vintage Bumgarner. He had a shaky outing on Monday and a loss against Miami, but it was only his second start since coming back. And there's every reason to believe that he'll kind of you know settle down a little bit. Um, and yeah, it's it's been you know we've it's been a, a funky year, but a good one so far. Um, in that Gorky Hernandez, the left fielder, who's never really shown a ton of power before, has suddenly kind of been on fire for the last month and change. And Andrew McCutcheon and Evan Longoria, who are the two sort of big elder statesmen uh, pickups for the Giants in the offseason, um, have been really good. You know, it's they've they've weirdly been very productive offensively. Um, I, I think together McCutcheon and Longoria are second and third in terms of number of Giants hits this year. Um, and Buster Posey is great, as always. And even Panda is having a pretty good year. He's he's batting two seventy nine, which is, you know, not quite at the, the heights that he once had, but he's, he's hanging in there. So, 
Yeah. I want to talk about Gorky Hernandez because I was shocked to learn that he's only 30 years old um, and has only has only played in, I'm looking it up, uh, this might be a day old, but uh, less than 300 Major League games. It feels like, and this might just be me, it feels like there's been a Gorky Hernandez uh, in, su- in a fourth outfield role for at least one big league team at a time every year since 2003. Like there's, like he is, there's a dread pirate Robertsization from of uh, of Gorky Hernandez, and I'm, I mean, I I obviously don't expect this guy who's never hit, hit worth a damn in in five major league seasons to to continue to to uh, you know slug in the mid four hundreds, for instance. But it's I think just that illustrates the the kind of surprising offensive performances that the Giants have gotten. Even though we haven't talked about Brandon Crawford hitting really well, and Posey's obviously one of the best players in the game and remains so, but. Yeah, I mean, with Gorky's, it's weird. The Giants do have this way of, um, you know, they're not totally unique in this, but especially later in the season, they have historically had this weird sort of trend of random player X suddenly becomes the greatest baseball player in the majors. And uh, and that sort of propelled them to to some um, big victories. And, And obviously we're still pretty early in the season, but Gorky's kind of has that air of just like, wait, this guy's doing what? Like we're going to be, you know, shuffling these highlights years from now and unable to believe that, that he's had quite, quite the season he's had, or maybe he will just continue on at this mid four hundreds slugging and uh, <laughs> we'll just, he'll get a statue outside uh, the park someday. What happened to Pablo Sandoval? He was, he was dead and buried. And now, and like, he's not so surprising that we've seen him be a very good big league hitter in the past, but just from the terrible time he had in Boston, I certainly didn't expect him to ever be a productive big leaguer again. Right. And I mean, honestly, I, I thought about the same and I, I think he only kind of kept getting at bats because the team was um, a little bit desperate, honestly. And uh, yeah, he's, he's weirdly just had this kind of comeback year um, where, you know, he's, he's hitting the ball pretty well and he's not striking out quite as much as he used to. And um yeah, it's been it's been very surprising. I think I saw him steal a base. I saw him in DC um, over the weekend where they took two of three games from the Nats, and and Panda was great. He looked fantastic. So one thing that, and this sort of harkens back to the the classic Giants um, World Series contenders. Their bullpen's been very very good. They've quietly assembled uh, a bunch of relievers who you look at and like, oh yeah, this guy's pretty good. Sam Dyson's figured it back out. Hunter Strickland is uh, not, once again, not striking out as many people as you'd expect a guy with his stuff to do, but he's pitched very well. Tony Watson's great. Will Smith is uh, back up and pitching well. You know, this, this feels like the kind of bullpen, and this goes into my next question, which is, which is like the kind of bullpen that would survive a starting rotation where Ty Black is, uh, maybe your best starting pitcher. Who is your favorite replacement Giants starter while uh, Cueto and Bumgarner have been on the shelf? Oh, God. I, that's, that's a tough one. Um, I, I don't I, You know, I spend so much of the time just watching these Giants sort of like through my fingers. But you're right that they've, they've just, they've really kind of come around. I mean, I, I was on this, uh, the podcast just like three months ago saying that everybody should take the under on this team in large part because I didn't believe in the bullpen. Um so it's it's funny to see them kind of thrive in this way, and especially since you know you said Smart is still out and Quito is still out, and um, yeah, I I don't know, I don't know, 
I have a hard time believing that we should truly be optimistic about this team, but I'm I'm certainly getting excited. That's sort of where all of this ends up. Like this is I don't know how good this team is right now. They're certainly in it and they were certainly expected to be in it before all this stuff went before the Baumgartner injury and the Cueto injury and they seem to be coming out and yeah, you know, that's the whole story. They seem to be coming out on the other side pretty okay. What do you think about their chances going forward? Yeah, I mean, like you said, I think a lot of the reason why um, they're still relevant is because, especially since the Dodgers have had this sort of like horrible snake bitten year where they, you know, have not sort of dominated the division like everyone thought they would. Um, but with the exception of, uh, I think they've got five more games against the Marlins from now until the 4th of July, the Giants will just be playing within the NL West. So I think. I think we will all have a sort of better sense of what we can um, expect from from this team going forward. I'm I am cautiously optimistic about this. And you know what? I just re- I mean I knew this, but I had not grasped the significance until now. It's an even year. <laughs> it sure is. So I don't know. The Taylor Swift magic is gone. So who knows? All right. Well, if the magic continues uh, for a little while, we'll talk about this again. But until then, it's always a pleasure to have you on. And, uh, you know, next time we, we encounter some gruesome bit of viscera, we'll, we'll talk about it again on the show. Sounds like a plan. Great to be here. Thanks again to Claire. Now let's call to the bullpen so we can get to a segment that is listed on the rundown as Ben Lindbergh on his dumb as shit DH take. Ben, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. So the reason that I wanted to bring you on is to yell at you because <laughs> you, you know, we've known each other a long time. We've talked about baseball a ton. Mm-hmm. We see eye to eye, I feel like, on almost everything. Yeah. And one of the few places where there is genuine disagreement uh between the two of us is the utility, I guess the aesthetic value of the DH. Would that be a fair, yeah, a fair I, consideration? I think so. And I think this, this conversation to a certain extent is almost as played out as the nine versus 10 batting around argument, which is one <laughs> of the other three or four places where you and I disagree with, uh, with each other fundamentally on baseball. Yes. But you wrote about this. <laughs> so we're going to talk about it. Yeah. And I think you lay out a pretty convincing case that, that pitchers, I mean, it is completely convincing because it's empirically based that pitchers are worse relative to league average than they've ever been at mm-hmm. hitting that it's we're reaching a point where we need to talk about whether the occasional Bartolo Colon home run is worth the um yeah worth the fact that 85% of the time they're going to make outs right and this is i think where we we diverge uh, sort of fundamentally on what the purpose is of pitchers hitting. Cause you, thank God you don't get into, Oh, hitting is dangerous because the day you, <laughs> you ra- you ran this, uh, I think it was the, the very same day, if not a day later, Masahiro Tanaka hurt himself running the bases. And yes. every time that happens, we see uh, the same slew of, Oh, p- playing offense is too, too dangerous for pitchers, which, I think would be a stronger argument if Adam Wainwright still weren't one of the operative examples. Adam Wainwright, who hurt himself hitting when, how what was that four or five years ago? Like if yeah. this happened more than once a season, I'd be more, I'd be more willing to, uh, to listen to that. Particularly on the on the heels of, of Shohei Otani going down, doing that very much more dangerous thing that pitchers do, which is pitching. So <laughs> you steered away from that, um, but uh, I think. 
there there are two things that in our particular uh, disagreement that that I will concede. One that this is an aesthetic preference, and that we're not going to make each other move on this. And two, right. I think a lot of this is based on I grew up rooting for a National League team, and you grew grew up rooting yeah. for an American League. I was going to say that probably has a lot to do with it because I think this is something that we all get indoctrinated with early. It's just whatever you grew up watching, you like and think is the aesthetically superior brand of baseball. Which, on the one hand, is good, I think, because it suggests that it's still baseball either way. And we still like it either way. So when people say to me that they would stop watching baseball if the DH came to the NL and a number of people have said that to me just in the last few days. I don't what, do you really, not watch the World Series? Yeah, like, I, this is, I don't believe them. I, I, no. think, I think that if the DH were to become universal, they would be fine with it. If that is the thing that sends you away from baseball, I don't know that you liked baseball all that much before because it's still the same sport, I think. So that's the positive spin. The negative spin is that we're all unoriginal thinkers who decide what we like when we're eight years old and then can never be swayed from that opinion again. So I think that's the other way to look at it. Anyway, both my skin and my heart have been hardened in the several days since this article was published, just from the feedback <laughs> I've received. <laughs> so do your worst. Nothing you say to me will be worse than my mentions on Twitter have been saying nonstop. I I kind of love that this is that like people like I know this doesn't matter and and we're not anywhere close together in DH in both leagues and this is a stupid argument but like this is one of those things that it's a I don't know if baseball arguments like this are less serious or like less self-serious than maybe like i don't know what the equivalent nba argument is for instance mm-hmm. but it feels like that's a lot more well i'll tell you than, actually because yeah, okay. a number of people tweeted at me the equivalent nba argument which i think is well some people are bad at shooting free throws does that ah. mean that we should say that they don't have to shoot free throws they were likening it to say a, a big man a center having to shoot free throws and being bad at it and I think that is a kind of a, a lousy comparison because no one is as bad at shooting free throws as pitchers are at hitting and also I think that shooting free throws is a lot closer to the typical job of an NBA player than hitting is to the typical job of a pitcher so I reject the comparison yeah. but that's what it is yeah that I think that comparison helps me but I also think it's kind of horseshit mm-hmm. um I mean here's here's my thing is I think that there I think there will be a point where where pitchers get so bad at hitting that it's not worth it to watch them strike out 80 percent of the time or, or whatever <laughs> yeah but I I think even as pitchers get worse and worse and worse. So right now, the league average OBP uh, across Major League Baseball is 317. For pitchers... 145. Yeah, it's, yeah, 140. I, baseball reference has been wonky for me today. I've got 146. But <laughs> okay. yeah, either way. But people look at that and think that pitchers are twice as likely to make an out mm-hmm. as as hitters are. And that's not true. Like, no. if your argument is that pit, we shouldn't watch pitchers hit because they almost always fail, well, position players almost always fail too. Mm-hmm. Like, for out of every ten uh, plate appearances, hitters will make an out six or seven times, and the difference is pitchers will make an out eight or nine times, and that's not really that big a difference if you look at it from that from that perspective. It's, yeah. 
you know, it's it's an extra out or you know, let's call it two outs every ten. Sure. There's also a power difference, a slugging difference. Okay. So it's it's not just what you do when you don't make an out. It's you know how you not make an out. So there's there's something to that too. But I know what and you I, mean. I, you know, it's baseball, and the old saying goes that if you make an out seventy percent of the time, you're good. That's actually not true. I would say sixty percent of the time you're good because we all value on base percentage now. But you're right. Everyone fails most of the time. Pitchers just fail much more often. Well, they fail. What is that? I'm struggling to do arithmetic in my head. <laughs> it's that's like uh, let's call it twenty percent more often. Mm-hmm. Sure. And okay. I, Am I completely wrong on the math? If, no, if the I, math is completely okay, I think yeah, I, I think you're you right. You just don't look at it this way. Okay, I well, don't. let me let me get through this. Okay, I get more than twenty percent extra joy from watching a pitcher reach base versus a position player, mm-hmm. and it doesn't even have to be the Bartolo Colon home run. It doesn't have to be the Joe Blanton home run in the World Series. It just like an opposite field single. Every like everybody loses their shit when that happens. It's it mm-hmm. you know the dug you get the pan shot of the dugout and everybody you know cheering and clapping and the pitchers obviously terrified that he has to run the bases now and they bring <laughs> out the jacket sometimes yes. and it's great and I think even if pitchers did make outs twice as frequently as position players even though that's mathematically impossible I would get more than twice as much joy from watching that unusual thing as. Mm-hmm. Uh, as from watching the mundane single the other way or um, or a looping line drive over the shift that you would get from uh, from a position player. And I think that novelty is still fun enough, at least from my perspective. And I think this is this is one place where you and I, I think, fun do on a serious philosophical level diverge in our uh, uh, love of baseball. Like you love weird stuff, but I think you also uh, – prize efficiency in a way that I don't, I find efficiency kind of boring. And like, I like that this is weird and suboptimal. And I think I don't think it's weird enough for, for you to like it. Like you, yes, it it takes more weirdness. I think you get more into the extremely weird stuff than I do, but it takes something more extremely weird to pique your curiosity. I think that's right. Yeah. But you hate the shift. I don't mind the shift. That's one other area where I think Mm -hmm. we disagree, but I think that generally we watch sports because we want to see people who are the best at that activity perform that activity. Now, you watch college baseball, so I don't know why you watch sports. <laughs> but <laughs> but I think most of us watch Major League Baseball because these guys are really, really good at what they do. They're the best in the world. And I like some divergence from that. I like seeing a position player pitch every now and then if he comes in in a blowout and suddenly we get to see what it looks like when someone who is not good at pitching gets to pitch. That's fine. Or I like to watch someone play out of position. If Joey Gallo starts a game in center field or Pablo Sandoval starts a game at second base, that's fun. But it happens every now and then. And I think I would feel the same way if pitchers hit every now and then. So if you had a Madison Bumgarner or former Ringer MLB show guest Michael Lorenzen on your roster and you thought they were good enough to pinch hit with them occasionally, or if you just ran out of players in an extra inning game and you had to put a pitcher in there and just see what it looked like. I would enjoy that in the same way that I do a position player pitching, but I don't enjoy seeing it every game or every National League game. That is too much for me, and I think the charm has worn off. 
Okay. And I'm thinking about college baseball. The last game last night in the Super Regionals was uh, Florida-Auburn, and Florida won. I think they scored three runs, but one of them was on a trick play steal of home, uh-huh. and the other was on a walk-off home run that hit the outfielder's glove and caromed yes, over the wall. I saw that. And like, I think I like college baseball because that kind of weird stuff happens. Maybe not literally that weird happens almost every night. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, maybe that's just that's a, a point where it stops being novel and, and starts looking sloppy in the aggregate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This discussion is entirely too civil <laughs> so far. I want, I want some fireworks and theatrics here, but I will tell you the kind of feedback that I've gotten to this article in this position and why I disagree with some of it. So I think, first of all, the historical context is important here. Pitchers have always been worse at hitting than regular position players, and they've gotten worse and worse and worse every single year, just about, certainly every decade. And so there's no end in sight. And one of the points I made in my article was that pitchers really aren't at all groomed to try to hit anymore. In many minor league levels, the lower minor leagues, they don't hit at all. In college, they don't hit. Even in high school, in some areas, they don't hit. And so I started off with an anecdote about Andrew Suarez, the giant starter, who has been forced to hit this year and a little bit in the high minors, but otherwise had never hit in a game since eighth grade. And so pitchers are not at all selected for this skill. They're selected because they can throw hard and they can throw accurately. And suddenly they get to the majors and they're just thrown into the deep end and they're supposed to face other pitchers who are better than they've ever been before. It's an impossible task, I think. So that's one thing. I get a lot of people saying, well, pitchers could just learn to hit. Why don't they just teach them to hit? Why don't they just try? We have 150 years now of baseball history that suggests that they're not going to hit any better than they do now, and they hit terribly now, and it's just going to get harder. So if you're expecting this to suddenly reverse itself, I just don't see any world in which that happens. And then the old school idea about you have to be an all-around player, you have to do everything if you're going to bat. I just don't think that holds either because pitchers do field, right? Even if they're not hitting, they're in the field. They're And that's they dangerous too. We could take that away from them. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not advocating that. But they are more than just pitchers. They field their position. We don't ask hitters to pitch as a, a matter of course. So I don't see why it's so unusual to not ask pitchers to hit. It's really kind of the other side of the same coin. These are just two separate skills. They're entirely separate. You are good at one. You make the majors because you're good at one, not because you have any talent at the other. And the last thing I'll mention, I get a lot of people saying, well, it's a slippery slope. If you're going to have guys hit for pitchers, then why stop there? Why not just have designated hitters for catchers or for shortstops, you know, guys who are not great hitters? And I just think that is kind of a sketchy argument, too. It's not as if you have a DH for the pitcher and suddenly it's going to spread There's no one in the class of pitchers. Pitchers are in their own category. They're abominable batters. They are nowhere near any kind of shortstop or catcher. I mean, the very best hitting pitcher right now, probably on a career basis, is Zach Greinke and then Bumgarner's right there. Those guys, the very best of their class, are about as good at hitting as Jeff Mathis, who is, you know, one of the worst position player hitters in Major League history. So there's no such thing, really, as a good hitting pitcher. There are only pitchers who hit a little less terribly than everyone else. Do you think it's interesting that we're having this conversation uh 
in the midst of something of a two-way player revolution with not just Shohei Otani and Brendan McKay are the two obvious examples, but you think of players who came up, you mentioned Michael Lorenzen already, J.D. Davis probably could play both ways if he, if he wanted to, Pedro mm-hmm. Florimon has been sort of a de facto, Chris Jimenez, they've been de facto two-way players at different points over the past couple of years. Do you think it's interesting that pitchers are getting worse while we're it, the pitching staff is expanding so much that it's eating some of the bench players. Yeah, I, I do think so. I, I don't know that there are really that many people who can do this. I think if you can, I want you to be able to. If you are Lorenzen or Bumgarner or certainly Otani, I don't want to take away anyone's ability to do this. I want to encourage it, if anything. So if there are guys with that skill set out there, I think maybe teams are becoming more receptive to the idea that you just let them try to do it at least because, as you mentioned, there is a, a premium on roster spots right now. So if you can get essentially two players out of one roster spot, then you might as well. But I just think that there are so few players who are capable of doing these things at the highest level of the sport that it's just going to remain a curiosity and kind of a freak occurrence when it does happen, which makes us appreciate it all the more. But it's just not something I think where we're going to see a a pipeline of two-way players just steadily delivering these guys to the big leagues. All right, let me give you one last thing, one last thrust against the walls that I know is going to fail. I think it's... It serves as a valuable reminder. It's, I'm sure you remember the Sam Miller article over the uh, over the winter where he asks um, if you had the the opportunity to play in a major league baseball game in left field for one game, would you do it? Would you do it for a full year? Uh, you know, at your current salary, but you have to live like a, a major leaguer. <laughs> and so many people <laughs> said they would, and they're so full of crap because it's so much harder than it looks on on TV and like. Any weekend warrior who played beer league softball or played baseball in high school thinks he can uh, just strap it on and draw a walk and not look like an absolute nimrod out there. And I think it's it's instructive and it's useful for the humility of the public in general to see world-class athletes go up there and look like idiots once every and it's and it's happening and you I, I believe you mentioned this yes. in the piece too the pitchers are are hitting less right. than than they were cuz they're going shorter and you know all, all those other things you know, they're we we don't have to see it four times a game but twice a game I think it's useful to to watch <laughs> Madison Bumgarner who could tear my arms and legs off with his bare hands who's trained his entire life to be a baseball player who is one of the best pitchers in the world at this specific thing and still be really bad at it mm-hmm. yeah I think I mentioned that in the article there is some virtue to pitchers hitting as kind of a control group like the the group that we can judge the improvement of the rest of the sport around like they're the one part of the game that hasn't really worked on hitting or been selected on hitting. And so the fact that they keep getting worse and worse and worse, I think, is a useful reminder and indicator that everyone else around them keeps getting better and better and better. So you can look at the difference between pitchers hitting in 2018 and pitchers hitting in any earlier era of baseball. And it's kind of a a handy way to say, yeah, baseball is a lot better than it used to be. It's harder to just walk onto a field and try to be a hitter without having any experience doing that. So I am sort of sympathetic to that. And, you know, all the arguments about strategy that NL fans will make. They're crap. Yeah, I mean, there are some teams like if you're the Dodgers and the Cubs and you have a lot of depth and it's kind of interesting, who are you going to pinch hit with or pinch run with? I mean, I get that. But on most teams, 
it's really kind of an automatic decision. If you pinch hit, you're going to pinch hit with this guy. I think that it's almost obvious now when a pitcher is going to be removed from the game because of the third time through the order effect. And it's just not that interesting a decision to me. Like, do we want to accept this virtually automatic out or do we want to actually put someone who can hit in there? Yeah, I guess it's an extra decision, but really I'd prefer just the the strategy of the AL, which is that you don't get a break in the lineup. You have to be at the top mm-hmm. of your game when every hitter is at the plate. There's no easy way out. So I think that's superior, if anything. So, you know, I dove back into old newspaper accounts for this article. You can go back to the 19th century and you see people arguing about this. So this is just the oldest debate in baseball. I don't know that we're ever going to convince each other, but I do think it will be resolved sometime soon. Honestly, I'm surprised we're now at 45 years of these two different brands of baseball coexisting mostly peacefully and functionally. And I'm sort of surprised that it still inflames the passions as much as it does. But I think that one of these years, it will just go the way of the dodo. And there will be the occasional person who is nostalgic for the days when pitcher hit. But, you know, before long, it'll just seem like one of those quaint things about baseball that uh, belonged in an earlier era and not in today. Yeah, well, I'm going to be working on my time machine to go back and and uh, raise you as a Mets fan. And then we can be on the right side of this uh, argument. Here, yes. One last entry. I have no idea. Pitchers are six for six in stolen base attempts this season. <laughs> well, I did not know which that. I did not know. No. Well, <laughs> look for an article on that next sure. week on the ringer.com probably <laughs> right. okay um all right well this has been stimulating and less shouty than i anticipated but yes, that's probably too. not a bad thing all, all right. right i'll talk to you next week okay that will do it for this edition of the ringer mlb show on the ringer podcast network thanks to zach cram claire mcnear and ben Lindbergh for joining me today thanks to producer jim cunningham for stitching it all together Thanks to Gorky's Hernandez and Shohei Otani for providing content for us today. And congratulations to the Washington Huskies and Jumpin' Joe Demers, who took a perfect game into the seventh inning in the Super Regional Final. Washington is bound for Omaha in its first ever College World Series. So congratulations again to them. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time.